The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Well, hello to you. Welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic with the square ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello. From The Athletic, here's Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. Nice special price right now if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, read all Phil's stuff, all the analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around. Ad-free versions of all our podcasts as well for less than a quid a week. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up and enjoy The Athletic throughout 2021. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. I think we may need to drop the one to watch feature, Phil, because it's getting out of control now. Uh, You had Zaha Hernandez as your ones to watch from the Leeds Palace game and uh, neither featured because they were both injured. It's a real hex, this. Um, And players across the country, I think, listening to this on a Friday morning, hoping they're not going to be named, otherwise it's going to be ACL or um, another injury that rules them out for about eight months. The only thing I'd say in my defence was that I did say with Zaha, it'll be pivotal whether or not he plays. It wasn't looking too likely last week, and it it definitely was pivotal because Palace are fairly one-dimensional at the best of times. They'd looked utterly one-dimensional without him. But as for Hernandez, yeah, muscle injury in the last training session before the game. So it wasn't on the bench, um, didn't feature obviously chatted on it at length about him before, but it just cannot get going this season. And I think he's, he's going to find it hard to get going in, in the period that's left. And I think more and more is, is heading towards a, a summer exit. But yes, one to watch um, seems to be uh, ever more the uh, damning curse at the moment. <laughs> if you did one for Farshaw, do you think you can make him fit again? What, sort of reverse psychology? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking, I tried to do that during the Brighton game. I was saying with five minutes to go, I'm going to say that it doesn't feel like a goal's coming because it definitely doesn't. Um, and I'm pretty sure I was trying to play the same trick during the playoffs, playoff semi-final against Derby. But evidently it only works one way, this, um, which is always <laughs> to the United's detriment. But it was nice for Gelhart, I was going to say before, for him to get a shot at the bench and get included in the squad. And, and hopefully we'll start to see moves for him towards the first team. And returning to what you said then about Palace being one-dimensional, they were woeful, weren't they? Completely woeful, totally toothless without Zaha, which was nice because it meant what was probably the first routine win of the season for us. Do you remember that time when it got to the stage where Snodgrass seemed to be, if not the only decent player in the lead squad, but the only consistent player and the only player you could kind of rely on to turn up week after week and, and do something? I mean, I, I remember speaking to Glenn Snodden, um, former assistant at Leeds, and him saying, look, I, I can't deny that there were periods where you would stand on the touchline and think, just give it to Snoddy, because if we don't, we're not going to create anything. And it, it felt like that with Izzy on, on Monday night. I mean, he, he was the only outlet for Palace, played in a slightly odd position out wide, which I know he, he can fulfil, but seems to me, without any doubt, that he's far better through the middle and then that that 10 area where he actually did quite a lot of damage against Leeds down at Selhurst Park. He looks completely wasted in that team. And and I think, you know, I've heard a lot said about Palace this season about the fact that they do lack flair. They do seem to lack much in the way of variety in the play and much in the way of an overall plan as well. And the centre-backs, they look like they could do with a real refresh there. Cahill had an absolute nightmare and not just that wonderful, wonderful back heel from from Rafinha. Um, it was a really hard evening for him. And all over the pitch, they just looked limited. Minus Sahar's pace, there was no real threat. I think they were made to look worse by the fact that, that Leeds turned in another really, really good, comprehensive performance. And pretty telling performance, I think, because a good example of how well this team and the squad have settled into the Premier League and a good example of how 
they are able to mix it actually quite impressively with the sides who fall out with the, the top bracket. It's not they haven't played well against Liverpool or, or Manchester City, but I think when you see them up against a Palace or a Newcastle, teams like that, they look as if they deserve to be the sort of position they're in, 10th, 11th. And it felt extremely, extremely orderly. It felt like it was always in hand on Monday night. And I think it, it goes up there with the better wins this season. We want to be in a position where we can go into games against teams that are beneath us in the league and expect to win them. Whereas it's kind of, it's a bit of an exploration, isn't it? Your first season, you're just finding your feet, finding your range, seeing who's good, seeing who's bad. But you can pretty much draw a line through the table and we've beaten the teams beneath us by and large and then not uh, beating the teams above us. You know, Generally speaking, there are exceptions to that rule. So we're kind of finding at the appropriate level. Would you say now we're safe? Even Michael thinks we're safe. I think he does anyway. I think one more win and then I'll be I'll be completely confident. But yeah, it is done, isn't it? And particularly given that there's no life whatsoever in the bottom three. That's the point here. We did a quite a close look at the way it's gone for the bottom three in the Premier League um, over the last sort of ten seasons or so. And to to put it simply, three teams in the position that Fulham, West Brom, and Sheffield United are in, I've never ever managed to claw the way out and to stay up. And I don't think any of them are, are going to do that. I, I'm not convinced that any of them will get to 30 points. I don't think 29 would necessarily have been enough for Leeds. But even before the Palace win, it felt to me like they were definitely safe. And, and they're on for a very good points total this season. At the moment, with the average they're picking up, they'll hit around about 55 if they keep it going, which is better than really all but a handful of sides who've, who've come up in the Premier League era or, or since the Premier League went to 20 clubs. So it's a very, very impressive first season. And I think that's the point we've all been trying to make in amongst the, the various bits of criticism. And I don't mean criticism of individual performances from Leeds. I mean more the, the criticism that's come from time to time of the, the the ethos under Bielsa, like the attitude towards the way they attack, the way they defend, you know, the, the whole project. It, it's having a, a really impressive effect. And, and you were saying there about, you know, finding your feet first time round in the Premier League. Monday was the sort of game that made me feel as if Leeds are starting to stray a bit beyond that now. They were so confident and and they seemed so sure of themselves against Palace that I think en masse they've all settled into the league and I think they all feel like they're they're happy in it, they're content in it, they're they're coping with it fine. And and it was one of those games you almost like where it's 2-0 going on 4-5 and you wish it had been 4-5. But actually, towards the end, Palace's press was hopeless and wasn't even really there to any great extent, you know, with five, ten minutes to go and, and Leeds leading 2-0. And, and I just thought it was so comfortable in the end that it was, you know, it was, it was a big tick um, for Leeds. And, and I thought it asked some really, really pointed questions of, of Palace and Roy Hodgson. Just to go back to the centre-backs, I think it's a nice contrast between the two, actually, because when you come up into the Premier League, there's a lot of wisdom that says, oh, you need to get central defenders who know the league, who've done it before, and... You look at the two sides there, with they had a lot of experience in there and were torn to bits and we had virtually none and looked incredibly comfortable for the entire game. And I think it's quite impressive that we've been able to do that so soon. I'd go as far as saying that that was Liam Cooper's best game um, on Monday night, best game that I've seen him have for Leeds. I don't think Strike was far off either. I thought he, I thought the two of them played so well that even if you'd had Koch and, and Llorente back for this weekend, which Bielsa won't and Berardi now is, is not a million miles away either, I don't think you'd have been changing that pairing. I think you'd have been keeping it as it is. I mean, my feeling with centre-backs generally is that you have to accept that they're going to make mistakes and that they're not going to be perfect. No matter how much money you pay 
and no matter how good even somebody like Van Dijk is, you're still going to have periods where the form dips, where it doesn't click in the way that it has before, where they're not quite able to dominate everybody in the way that they, they generally do. And, and I think it's important that you don't, to coin a phrase like throw the bathwater out or the baby out with the bathwater, um, if I can get that the right way around, when you, you get errors from Cooper or from Strike or Cockard or anybody else, I think you need to try and look at the bigger picture and to work out whether as a team and, and as a strategy it's working. And, and it definitely is. I think a lot of Cooper's distribution is very good. I think for what it's worth, aerially, he's actually a big bonus for Leeds because they're not a strong team in there. They, they aren't dominant, but he's good. He's good aerially. He's a strong header of the ball. You see without fail that he gets matched up with the strongest um, header of the ball, the opposition side at set pieces and, and everything else. And you're right. I mean, I, I just saw in, in Dan and particularly Cahill, it, it felt old, it, it felt rusty, it felt as if it really was in need of renewal in that area. I think with Cooper and Strike, you were looking at two players who seemed to be getting better and seemed to be improving. And that's true of a lot of the positions in Bielsa's team. And I think that's one of the big reasons why they've acclimatised so well this season because they know the strategy, they know the, the plan of attack on the Bielsa but they do have scope to get better. And I think across the board, most of the players at Leeds have. Mind you, Strike, you could argue with those missed headers that he was Palace's best defender on the night. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a little bit like that. And I think he was saying afterwards, I need to practice practice my heading. I mean, the one in the first half in particular is about as easy a chance as he's ever going to get. And the one in the second half from the, the corner, a couple of yards out, wasn't much more difficult. But it, it comes back to that same old thing, doesn't it? Of Are you playing well? And if you're playing well, are you creating chances to which the answer is yes in both cases and you know it, it was a, a very sort of respectable again XG um, on Monday and I know I know not everything comes down to XG and I know some people get very sick of it but I do more and more feel that it's a pretty good metric and, and measure of, of how you are performing and I think if you listen to Bielsa after the games and the number of times he speaks about we had X many chances and we could have scored this many goals I think that's part of his thinking. I think he thinks in terms of XG, not because he's obsessed with the metric itself, but I think because he reads the game in that fashion. You know, he looks for the the amount of attacking play that Leeds have. He tries to assess properly whether or not his team deserved anything from the game. And um, without any doubt, they deserve to beat Palace and they deserve to beat them by a wider margin. But it's, it's immaterial, really, because it just goes down as another very good result. How good is Rafinha? Talk to me about Rafinha. Let's wax lyrical about him for a bit because he's brilliant. What more to say, really, apart from what would you price him at? Now, I um, I asked a, a data firm, AI Abacus, which uh, is a company run by the man who founded Prozone back in, in the late 90s. I, I wrote a bit of a feature on them not so long ago, and, and they've started to employ artificial intelligence to analyse the suitability of transfers, how well they might fit at a club, and whether their skill set is a good match, but also the value of them. And it's not perfect, and it's not you know, it's still, I think, to be proven over time. But the one thing I would say for anyone who's sceptical is that there was a lot of scepticism about Prozone back in the day and it became all-encompassing for, for professional football. And, and it, you know, on the basis of that track record, the same person pushing AI Abacus, it, it might well follow the same path and, and the same trajectory. But they were analysing that on purely, you know, basic model and sort of basic finance, Rafinha would already be worth about, £25 million pounds and they said you know themselves look the club would charge a big premium on top of that and given the way he's playing you know it, it would be in Leeds gift to, to set his valuation at whatever they, they thought but you'd make a big profit on him straight away and 
I wrote about him after the Arsenal game back in November, and it was it was the first time we'd had a really proper look at him. And you're always loath to draw quick conclusions about players, but there was so much in it that impressed me, and so much in it that I was taken with the, the way he seemed to see the right pass very quickly, the, the the movement and rotation in his positioning, and and obviously his touch and his flair as well. He just looked all round like a quality, intelligent footballer. And I mean, the turn that mugged Cahill and picked his pocket was absolutely fantastic. But a few minutes after that, there was a brilliant touch with his back heel to bring down a long crossfield ball that was just done in the way that only really elite footballers do. You know, it was done without thinking. It was done as if he knew he was going to be able to bring it under control. There's a lot of talk, you know, the narrative around him at the moment has suddenly become... How long will Leeds be able to hang on to him for? Um, and I don't know whether that's premature. I don't know whether it's a bit excessive. And uh, you know, uh, there will be clubs keeping tabs on him because why wouldn't you? You know, he, he is that good. Uh, but I think that does that does say something about the impact he's had. The fact that people can see already that if sides you know further up the kind of elite pyramid than Leeds at the moment were were keen and had the money, then they they might well be tempted. And it's it's quite difficult to argue otherwise. It makes quite a refreshing change as well to be talking about how long can we hold on to someone for as opposed to how long have we got him for? I feel like, <laughs> is it a three-year contract we've given him? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I think the difference this time as well is that if and when a player like that or a player of any sort of extreme value was to go, you would be assuming that they would be going to Champions League club um, unless there was some financial um, offer that made it worth the while to, to join somebody at a lower level. Whereas, I mean, there was a period where it was a case of how long can we hold on to somebody for, but not even necessarily because they had the entire world crawling all over them. It just seemed to be that as soon as Norwich put anything resembling seven figures plus on the table, players would go, you know, and, and yeah, there was £6 million for Delft, but Snodgrass, Housen went fairly cheaply. You know, it, it wasn't huge money that, that was coming in. And I think there was the resentment in Leeds, aside from the fact that the club was selling and there didn't seem to be any ambition on that front, was that they would go into clubs that you felt that Leeds at, at full tilt and with a full potential realised should be much bigger than and much more competitive than. And so there is a there is a difference. And to go back to something we were chatting about with, with Leicester um, on a couple of podcasts ago, you do have to be realistic about what comes in and, and bids that are put you know that, that come through the door. And if they start to get to extortionate level, there are times where you have to take it, despite the fact that you don't want to lose the, the extreme talent that's going. You know, as as, as Leicester did with Mares and Chilwell and Kante and others, you can cash in and make a very big profit. And if you've got a good recruitment model, you can then find players who fill the gap and, and who keep the team ticking over and keep your um, keep that side of things ticking over. I'm not suggesting for a second that I want to see Rafinha go, but I think you you do have to face up to the fact that there are now some clubs out there with you know with with very very big pockets, deep pockets, and deeper pockets than Leeds. Who, if Leeds continue to do well, will doubtless look at some of the players. I think we also need to get used to the idea that we can keep a player because, as you said, it used to get it used to be that stage where you'd see someone come into the team. You, the first time you saw Delph, you thought. How long is he going to be here for? He looks far too good. Whereas you do hope now we can start to build around him and maybe make something worth staying around for. I mean, that, that's another thing, you know, that talking about the present day, and we were chatting about this via uh, via WhatsApp, Phil, weren't we? Um, when we were talking about uh, planning part two of this podcast. And it, it's that if we've learned one thing from the Bielsa era, it's to enjoy the here and now, because what we're experiencing, and we'll, we will come on to it in part two, is something pretty special. And I think 
Rafinha very much represents that. So I'm just enjoying him being here. I'm just enjoying him watching him play. And especially now we seem to be safe in the Premier League and that existential terrorist kind of, I can keep it mostly at bay anyway. Now now we're all but safe. You know, it's nice to be able to enjoy things like this, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think Leeds are a very, very attractive proposition for players at the moment. I felt that during the summer. I think it was demonstrated by Rodrigo coming over. I think to an extent it was demonstrated by Rafinha as well because he, he said, he was interviewed by ESPN in Brazil and, and he said, it annoyed me that Ren had been talking about me as a 50, 60 million pound player and then we're, we're happy to take an offer of about 70 million pounds from Leeds. I don't mean he was annoyed to be going and he was annoyed to be joining Leeds. I mean, he, he wanted the transfer. But I, I think in his head, he, he saw himself, certainly with Ren's direction, as somebody who was far more far more valuable than, than what they took from him. But if he did think of himself as a 50, 60 million pound player, then he certainly wasn't going to be joining Leeds. I mean, at, at that price, you're falling into the Champions League bracket. They're about the only clubs who have the finance to do that sort of transfer and often already have a strong enough squad where they can plough you know, a, a huge portion of the budget into, into one deal. I mean, £50, £60 million would have wiped out a very, very sizable percentage of the money Leeds were committing in the summer. But that tells you that even if Rafinha did think of himself as a Champions League player and Ren were about to play in the Champions League, they'd, they'd qualified for the first time. It wasn't a, a huddle to him actually wanting to come and play for Leeds. It wasn't a huddle for him wanting to come and, and play for Bielsa. And the one thing I don't think Leeds are going to have a huge problem with is being attractive and, and being a draw. They're going to find with some players that they're either priced out or that they, you know, for example, uh, the defender Guardiol, who went from Dynamo Zagreb to RB Leipzig, Leeds worked very hard on that. And, and there was a point um, right at the, you know, shortly before the end of the transfer window, where they thought they they might get him, um, and they thought it was it was very possible. And then he chose to to go to Leipzig for his own reasons, as much as anything. He seemed to have some doubts about coming to the Premier League, but Leipzig are again have got a lot of pulling power um, and a lot of money there. And and there will be times when Leeds will get into into the sort of battering ring and aren't able to win because that's just the the way it goes. But I think if you you know if you're trying to say to Rafinha this is a good place to stay, I don't think you I don't think you need to push that too much. I don't think it'll be it'll be difficult to convince him of that. And I don't you know I put it this way I, I don't sense any concern at Leeds about the possibility of offers coming in from. I don't even think they're they're even really discussing it at all. If it happens, it happens. But I think it's all pretty hypothetical. At the moment, and it would be early, even you know, even after so many good performances, it, it would be early in this particular window of a season for people to look at him and go, Do you know what? Yeah, definitely spend 50, 60 million pounds on him. I still think the clubs would want to, to do more concerted scouting. I can't wait for him to experience a full Ellen Road responding to him doing those tricks like that. It's going to be great when we get back in there for that and so many more reasons. <laughs> That's the travesty of this season, though, isn't it? I, I said in a piece after Chelsea away, and obviously that was one of the, the poorer performances, but I was saying, you know, Chelsea had 2,000 fans back in that night and it was all short-lived and COVID called a halt to, to even crowds of that size pretty soon after. But I was saying it is a travesty that there was nobody there to see the running last season. There's nobody there to watch the way this team are developing. There's no nobody there to see the quality of the football that's being played. And I know you get it on the telly and everything else, but it isn't the same. And, and it can't be the same for somebody like Rafinha. 
doing a doing a trick like that and, and mugging Cahill in, in the way that he does and, and not hearing the crowd react to it. You know, yeah, there was a lot of talk on Twitter and we were all, you know, we we're all tweeting about it and all having a joke about it. But, you know, in, in the moment, that's when you really, really feel those things. And it's it's looking like next season now and, and I still wouldn't predict with any confidence that at the start of next season we'll be talking about 35,000 inside Ellen Road. I, I still think it will be a fairly slow burn when the time comes to start letting people back in. European nights as well next season, don't forget, under the lights. Hopefully we'll have crowds <laughs> back in for that. Is is that a stretch too far this season? Um, would that actually be a hindrance, do you think, next season if we uh, if well, we need time to build a squad and not get a, a fixture list that's too jammed up? Well, it's a good question, that, and I think that is the, the point. I mean, you, you can't... Um, if the opportunity is there and you qualify for Europe, you can't avoid it without throwing games, can you? And they're, they're certainly not going to do that. I don't think it will happen this season. For them, without being unfair to them, I don't think they're a good enough team actually to finish yet in those places. I think they'll be a little bit shy of it, but but not much. And I don't think it matters in the way we're all going to view this season when it finishes. You know, even if there's a dip now, I think it's been a, a really really impressive transition but it is a really small squad and I know Bielsa likes a really small squad but the Europa League in particular puts huge pressure on clubs because you're travelling generally further afield the Champions League tends to be you know heavily based in Spain Germany France Holland um, the UK as well but the Europa League does take you further afield further into Eastern Europe um, it, it tends to be more difficult to manage the fixture list because the games fall on a Thursday and everything gets shunted back and forth it's, it's tough and and I think it would I think it would be a lot of a lot of strain for a squad this small to deal with I know when Bielsa was at Bilbao he didn't have a huge number of players but the players there have spoken about how shattered they felt towards the end of that season when they made the Europa League final and the, the final of the Copa del Rey and it's not an accusation of burnout in the way that, that people seem to throw it at Bielsa. I think the point they were making was that there were just so many fixtures that it was really, really hard to cope with. You know, it was just relentless and it was it was never ending. And yes, Bielsa could probably have rotated more or he could probably have used more players, but I don't think it would have changed the fact that the, the fixture list was absolutely chocking. So to answer that in short, I don't think it would necessarily be good. It would be a, it would be impressive, um, and and it would be, you know, it'd be a real feather in the cap having done that the first season. But I don't think it will happen. And when it comes to sort of longer term evolution, I almost feel that first time round it would be much better for them if it didn't. And a warning from the future in that Chris Wilder was uh, joking in press conferences talking about renewing his passport about this time last year, and look where they are now. Yeah, I mentioned that in my report on Monday. You know, him saying yeah, my passport's up to date, um, and that was only only six months ago. And I, you know, there the are quite a few examples of second seasons that have been difficult for clubs who've come up and, and done well the first year after promotion. But I think the way to counter that is to be proactive in the transfer market consistently. And I think Leeds will be at the end of this season. I do think we'll see more activity. I think we'll see more expenditure. I think they and Bielsa, who I do expect to stay, I think they will try to make sure that it's not a case of one great season and let's coast from here. I think they'll know that there are positions they need to improve um, and, and work that they need to do. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's pull on that thread a bit then, Phil, that you mentioned in part one there. Rumours growing that Bielsa is set to stay for another season. You you proudly proclaimed then confidently that he's going to be staying again for definite, 100%. How close do you think we are? 100% for definite. Um, no, I'd, I'd never dare say that because, um, well, you know me for starters, the old jinx kicking in. They won't get anywhere with this until the end of the season because he won't, unless he um, breaks from t- tradition, he won't address it until they get to the point where they're 100% safe. But more likely when, when the games are out of the way, it's always been like that previously, is how he wants to operate. And it's why the negotiations before this season almost ran beyond the first game against Liverpool. It was literally the, the Thursday night, Friday night before the game on the Saturday, uh, Friday morning, sorry, when it was actually signed and so much so that Leeds had asked the Premier League for basically check the rules to make sure that on the the kind of existing rolling deal that he was on he'd still be eligible to be on the touchline at Anfield because it wasn't his intention to leave they just couldn't get him to to actually confirm and 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 be happy with the contract um, until 24 hours before there's no indication to say that he's thinking of of going Um, he seems extremely content Uh, people who know him say that he's very happy as, as happy as he's been previously and I think having got out of the championship, which was aim one, to have come into the Premier League and to have seen the team, I guess, adapt and to, to grow into the division as well as they have, must make him feel that the, the whole project has got a lot of life in it yet and, and legs still. I mean, it's not it's not as if they look like they're, they're about to hit a wall. It's not as if they look as if they need the amount of investment that they can't afford. Um, they, they do seem to have money, they seem to have cash, seem to have funds available. And I've obviously gone at it first time around, 100 million in the last window. I think we'll spend fairly heavily again when this window comes around. And and I don't know, I mean, I, I sway between thinking he's he's 65, his family are a long way from, home, from him. You know, they're back home in Argentina, very difficult stroke, impossible for him to be visiting them or them visiting him at the moment. But, it has to be said as well that at that age, you can't make assumptions. I think in management generally at any age, you can't make assumptions about when your next job's going to come or if your next job's going to come. And I think he will know that there would be inherent risk in him saying, do you know what, I'm just going to take a break. I've decided I've, I've done my bit here. I'm, I'm going to go when it's still going well. And then finding that in two, three, four years, he's he's still out of work and, and that, you know, he, he wishes he'd stay because it's not as if other clubs aren't going to be interested in him, but there will be some for whom Bielsa would just not work, you know, his style of management and his style of coaching and recruitment, it just wouldn't be for them. There are other clubs who would not work for Bielsa because they, they wouldn't be able to do what he'd want them to do or to satisfy him. It just feels like a really, really good match, really, really nice match. And, you know, unless something goes badly wrong in the next two or three months, I'd be absolutely amazed if come the summer, you know, he's not minded to to go on into year four. That's done it, hasn't it? Uh, one for Michael before I come back to you, Phil. I'm curious to know, just to return to something I mentioned in, in part one, actually, it feels like a special time. It feels good because we don't know where it goes yet. And it feels like we've got 
limitless possibilities almost with the way that the, the 49ers are talking and the stadium's looking at getting redeveloped. Do you get the sense that we're living through a special time, Michael? Can you actually enjoy it? I actually am enjoying it, which is weird. It's the lack of pressure now as well, because there has still been that pressure through the season. And I mean, it's hard to escape us being talked about on the radio with we'd lose a game and it'd be over Leeds. This is the start of Leeds plummeting towards relegation. And while I didn't actually believe it, the noise being there, something does get into your head. And there is a little bit, bit of me, particularly because I am a bit this way inclined, to say the least. <laughs> there is always a little bit of me that hears Leeds are probably going to drop now. And I just thought, probably right. We bloody are, you know. <laughs> but they, I was thinking about this in, in terms of we're probably the happiest fans in the Premier League, yeah. weirdly enough. Like even more so than Man City, who've obviously not lost in months now. But I, I feel they kind of have come to expect that from their team, whereas this is new for us. And doing anything new is always exciting, isn't it? Even if it's mid-table in the Premier League, on paper it's not that exciting, but for us it is because we've not been here in such a long time and it feels like we're on such an upward swing at the moment that it's it's all good. Even with the sort of when we get knocked back, it can feel like part of the journey as opposed to the end of the line, which is the way it's felt on many occasions before. Yeah, Phil, well, you've written the book. This is the the point that we can arc towards, I guess, because you're documenting this Bielsa era. Uh, how do you even go about that? I mean, in fact, before you answer that question, do the cheap advertising plugs, then we'll get those out of the way. Okay, yeah. Well, have written a book is a little bit of a stretch. Oh, and right. Writing a book would would be um, would be more accurate. I do I do need to finish it and um, deliver it on on time. The easy part of these things is always saying yes, and then you'd sort of contemplate the prospect of a hundred thousand words. And it's a great question, and I think um, it's for anybody who who does want to pre-order, and you can pre-order with Amazon and, and other places. It's called. And it was beautiful story of, of Marcelo Bielsa and Leeds United. That quote comes from the very end of the second episode of season two of Take Us Home, which I think we, you know, we kind of all agreed was by a mile the best part of it. Just that beautiful section where they've got the camera flying over the celebrations at Ellen Road, and you've got him talking in the background. And and what struck me about that was that he doesn't get too emotional, Bielsa. He can get emotional about criticism and about things. You know, where he feels like he's he's under attack slightly, but when it comes to you know achievements and so on, he, he, it all seems to me that he leaves it to to other people. But that was something that that obviously just got him. You know, it, it obviously mattered to him so much, and and you could you could hear that in his voice. In terms of how to document it, I mean, with, with it, the book will be a mix of um, narrative chapters through this season, but also thematic chapters looking at, for example, his analysis, his coaching, his backroom staff, you know, his, his methods and, and and also, you know, the way in which he's kind of engaged with the city in Leeds, the way in which the story of Leeds is kind of engaged with people back in Argentina as well, a country that had, if truth be told, no real perception of who or what Leeds United were. I mean, if you speak to people over there who are now fascinated by it all, they knew nothing about the club before. They had no interest in the club. They, they had absolutely no interest in the championship. You know, and then you, you get to the point where ESPN are suddenly televising games live. And the only reason for that is because of because of Bielsa. I mean, I was in touch this week with um, with somebody who, if you remember at Bielsa's, one of his first pre-season friendlies at York, there were pictures of him sitting and chatting to an Argentinian person who turned up to just to the game because Bielsa was there. And I got in touch with the the guy, a guy called um, Sebastian. I said to him, well, you know, it'd be nice to speak to you about your conversation with him and, you know, what was said and, and everything else. And he got back and he was very polite. He said, oh, I would like to help, but do you know what? I really want to keep that to myself. You know, I just want to keep that conversation 
is my own memory and I've never told anybody about it. I don't want to tell anybody about it. You know, what we chatted about there, it's just for me. And you do get this impression of people feeling as if they're they're meeting some kind of deity. You know, it, it does feel like that to a lot of people, the people who really rate him and, and love him in Argentina. It's, it is like a, a man who, who walks on water. So I kind of thought about writing a book. I'd never really pushed it much. And then somebody approached me and I was still a little bit sceptical, didn't know if, if it was the right time or, or a good idea. But the more I thought about it, the, the more I just kind of felt that there's never ever going to be a story quite like this again at Leeds, which is not to say there won't be stories which are as good or better, but they will be different. You know, it won't be the same. It won't be somebody kind of resurrecting them in, in the way that he has. And it certainly won't be somebody doing it in exactly the same way as he has. And it just, I, I just kind of felt that if I didn't properly write about this, it would be a bit of a missed opportunity. It goes back to what you said before, actually, Phil. I think when you look at the harmony that's at the club and across the city, and you factor in the timing and, and the protagonists in this particular play. It's like it's a club that needed direction, a club that needed to rebuild its links to the city, fans that needed to trust the club again. And you've got Bielsa who's come in and been so single-minded, yet so humble and, and so warm and generous. It's, it's just been, it's a, it's a perfect mixture, isn't it? It is. And I always felt that the city was desperate for somebody like him. You, if you think back to the, the years through Chilino and GFH and Bates and, and everything else, the whole place became a bit apathetic and pretty sceptical and it was a lot of a lot of Gallo's humour and I guess if, if you were kind of new to that or if you were observing it from a, a slight distance, you might feel as if the whole place was rotten, as if it, it could never recover, but I do think that even in the, the really grim times, people were constantly hanging on the, the promise of better ownership or and you know more to the point a better coach a better squad somebody who could could actually deliver and I think it probably helped with Bielsa that when he came in he, he didn't fixate too much on that you know he, he didn't think about or it seemed to me anyway he, he didn't think about what it would what it would be like if he became the center of attention for for good reasons you know what it would be like if he became the hero of the story or the, the hero of the city. He, he just came in and attacked the coaching in, in the way that he wanted to. That's all it was about. Even in that first summer, there wasn't too much attention paid to, to transfers. I mean, I, I always remember that conversation they had in, in the car park. Him and Brad Rosani and, and Kinnear and Alter were there as well. And they were still waiting for signings and you very much got the sense of Bielsa or somebody else there saying, look, come on, this is the point at which we have to, to get something done. And Barry Douglas was, was sorted within days and Bamford came soon after. But it wasn't the it wasn't kind of the focal point for Bielsa. He just worked with the players, that lineup on the first day of, the, of his first season. Ten players who were already at the club. Barry Douglas was the only one who, who started. And I think you, you got the perfect mixture of somebody who was such a specialist at what, what he did and, and you know, borderline genius, I think, in, in a lot of ways. But somebody whose ego wasn't going to interfere with things, so he wasn't going to obsess about who was getting the credit. He wasn't going to obsess too much with what was being said about him, even though he reads newspaper articles constantly. He's not really looking to see people talk about how incredible he is. He's just looking to see if it's fair, if it's reasonable, if there's anything in it that makes him think or or makes him think that in some respects he might be wrong in, in a little of, of what he's doing. But it, it has been absolutely the, the perfect match. And you, know, you, you were saying we were chatting on WhatsApp about this. I was saying to you, 
he's completely changed the way I think about football. It's been a, a bit of an education. I'm I'm probably less interested in transfers now than I've ever been. And that's not to say that they aren't important and recruitment doesn't make a difference. But I think at Leeds, we all got into the mindset of feeling that transfers were everything. You know, the, the reason they were no good was because they weren't spending money and they weren't buying players and they weren't trying to enhance themselves. But actually, if you have a very good coach, you don't necessarily need to do too much of that. And I, I'm far more interested now in the coaching side of things, the tactical side of things, the analytical side of things. And it feels a bit like growing up. You know, it feels a bit like going from the championship manager mindset, football manager mindset, to actually start to understand the way that coaches at, at his level work. Um, and it's been a, an absolute privilege to be in the thick of it. And what we were saying, actually, in that conversation, Phil, it's taught us the value of patience and time. That's one of the big things I've learned from uh, from observing Bielsa and I mean, having been on this journey for the last two, two and a half years. What about you, Michael? What What do you think you've taken from the, the Bielsa era that you didn't have before? Happiness, mainly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I mean, he's, he has genuinely brought hope is the main thing that I think he, he, that first game when he turned up against Stoke and we weren't quite sure what we were getting, we knew he had a, this kind of difficult but brilliant reputation. I mean, it, and it was one of those things that it's probably not going to work in the championship, isn't this? It, he could, it felt uh, to me anyway, like he was as likely to be gone by September as he was to, we were to be top of the league. And he turned up and we played this incredible football straight away. As Phil said, it was about doing it with the same players as well. And it was that feeling of how on earth as it felt like a miracle, didn't it? You know, in the films where they go, Oh, and a miracle happens. That's what it felt like that Stoke game. Yeah. Or the bit where the, you know, that in a film, it's someone who, He's been a geek and then all of a sudden they come out for prom and they're, they're, they're beautiful <laughs> after all. It was like that. It was like, Matthias Click's absolutely brilliant all of a sudden. How's, what, what's happened to him? Like the last time we saw him, he was slipping and being sent off on loan yeah, somewhere. It was, he just completely transformed it. And he's, he's made everything right in the world for me, my Leeds United world anyway. Pretty much. And it's interesting you go back to transfers actually, like it, and the way that he doesn't really talk about them and he doesn't, he doesn't talk about any external factors, does he? I think that's what I've, what else I like about him is that he doesn't ever come out after a game and say, we were robbed because that referee decision was wrong or, well, I've got loads of injuries, what do you expect? He just goes, well, Pascal Stroik is going to play at centre-back, that's fine. Jamie Shackleton will come into midfield, that's fine as well. He's removed the blame game from football management, I think, from which is something we've not seen before. Well, to give you an example, I, I knew before this season started that there would be people out there who would be waiting for the opportunity to say that, that Liam Cooper wasn't up to it because pretty much all the way through Cooper's career at Leeds, there have been points at which that was the sort of prevailing mood. He's, he's not up to it. And there has been a bit of that this season. And then he plays like that on Monday. And you realise again that people do have the capacity to improve. And the one thing that you should almost never do on the Bielsa is make quick conclusions about players, certainly negative conclusions, because everybody does seem to be able to plug into it. And he has this knack of, of making people better. And again, it's, it goes back to that thing of so much football seeming to provoke debate about what you don't have and what you need and what you should be buying and what you should be spending on and who you should be getting rid of. Whereas actually, we've been lucky to go through a period where a team has, has properly evolved. You know, it's grown and it's been allowed to grow and it's had time to do that. And the, the, a lot of the parts in the machine, a lot of the cogs in the machine have properly stuck, you know. So you've now got Stuart Dallas playing as a number eight and playing as if he's played there for years and years, looking almost better than Clake at the moment, who actually, um, it should be said, had a, a really good game, I thought, against Palace and certainly much closer to, to being back to his best. But 
it doesn't seem to there doesn't seem to be any doubt to my mind anyway that the faith and the loyalty and the trust that they all get from Bielsa flows through into the football and it's very easy for managers to say that they trust players and they have faith in the squad and everything else but you always tend to find find out if that's true at the point where things get difficult and quite often to be totally frank it isn't true you know managers do see things going wrong and suddenly think right okay well we need players here we need to sign this we need to buy that we need to to change things around and that just isn't the way it leads and I think it's helped to make things harmonious I think it's helped to make people feel like they actually they're there and playing on on merit and it just consistently week after week is is showing itself in the way Leeds are playing and, and the results that they're getting Bielsa's convictions and Stuart Dallas are good examples actually because I remember first seeing him and thinking he's kind of all right as a winger not brilliant he's just about fine then he was good as a winger then he started playing as a fullback under Bielsa and I thought I'm not really convinced by him as a fullback and then he was brilliant as a fullback. And then he came into midfield and I thought, well, he's fine there for a few games, but I'm not really convinced by him in there. Now he's undroppable. And now he's brilliant in there as well. He just, he, he, I think Bielsa realises that sometimes a bit of time is needed, but he, he's able to see the underlying qualities in a player that, that will eventually make them good there, even if for a while we have to sit and think, is this... In, in, it's, it's in a game that gives you no time either. And we're guilty of it as well. We're totally guilty of it as fans. Of course we are. That's what we do. We panic, don't we? And we want, you know, answers to everything yesterday, but to do what he's done with these players and with this squad and the football that he's producing, I was trying to see if I could verbalise it or put it into words. And the only way I can describe it is he's created in me such a sense of wonder and like a strength of feeling and an intensity that it's it's a bit like falling in love for the first time. Like I love football again and I've, and I've rediscovered that I love football. I hate all football that's not Leeds now because it's rubbish. I mean, such the, so much of the Premier League's tedious isn't it? But this is just absolutely amazing and I don't ever want it to end. I thought you were going to say you had, you'd written a poem there. I was going to say, oh Christ, there we go. I yeah. want, I want no, that in the book, Phil. Your poem in the book, shall I, shall I finish it Finish it off? No, I, I mean, one, one of the things I'm finding with, with writing the book and you know going through so much of him, about him is that there's endless detail, you know, masses of stories and massive, loads of people that I've spoken to the last two or three years who give you insight into them and this, that and the other. But you still never feel like you're ever going to properly work him out. And I don't think in another 30 years of covering him, I would properly work him out. I've always wanted to know with Bielsa, and the problem here is that only he can tell you, you know, only he can properly answer this for you. But where does all this come from? You know, like when I did that piece before Christmas with a guy called Fabian Costello, who was former youth team player at Newells and was part of the squad, the first coach, the, the first squad that Bielsa coached as a as sort of academy like youth team coach. And what he was talking about, you know, Bielsa telling them about lactic acid and the way to deal with it and using broomsticks hammered into the pitch as kind of mannequins and playing handball to teach the players about how to move and where to move and constant rotation. Players being exhausted by it, running before games to get the muscles going. Where did this come from and, and why is it that he, you know, in a family who have very high level politicians in it, architects, you know, really professional, qualified people in, in more of a sort of academic sense or, or corporate sense, how did he end up straying out into football? What but, happens? But, in- don't, but don't you think it's it's driven by the same thing, though, that he's, he's clearly from, you know, stock that's, that there's intellect in the family. And I think it's, is it not driven by intellect and... Like it, it, yeah, it, I think it. I it, think it, it certainly it, is pursuing, um, pursuing a high. It's like pursuing a higher calling, isn't it? It's like art and truth and beauty is pursuing. And I know we're getting into like highfalutin concepts here, but that's all I can think it, it's driven by. 
I think to to put it another way, if there was one thing I would like to know about Bielsa, and if there's one thing I'd, I'd love him to explain in depth, it's where this knowledge and talent and understanding of the game came from. He'll have learnt it in some quarters. He'll, he'll follow people. He's obviously a disciple of Van Howes and he talks a lot about Hoggy Griffer, who was at, at Newell's as well. But some of it has to be natural talent and natural perception. You know, Some of it just has to be natural understanding of of what athletes need to do, how they need to work, of, of how football structured technically and, and tactically. And, and as I say, given that he looks like the black sheep of the family. The, the family don't see him like that. You know, they don't see him as a black sheep because he went into football. But he looks like the one family member who properly branched off and went in a totally, totally different direction. And and I'd love him to explain what it was that, that sucked him that way rather than, say, towards the, the Argentinian parliament. In many ways, it's simple, though, isn't it? It's It's one extra defender, so it's basic maths, and it's run more than the opposition, and you will generally succeed. Isn't that? That are the root of it. I don't know. If you want to answer that question, why don't you ask him? Do you think he would grant you an audience, uh, the thing that he doesn't do? Do you think you've built trust up? Would you ask him? I'd be wary of asking him for too much because I think it would be a slight insult to him given that he's he's pretty clear on where he stands with one-on-ones. But I do want to put that question to him and, and I do want to see if he'll address it in, in some fashion. Because as I say, you can speak to people who know him and people who are around him and, and people who can speak for him. But it's not the same as coming from him, you know, at what how he actually sees it. And I think I think it's easy to look at it now and say it's it's one extra defender and it's, you know, it's pass and move and this, that and the other. But when I spoke to Fabian Costello about it back in the 80s, uh, you know, what, what he saw in the, the early 80s with Bielsa, they'd never seen anything like it. They were totally bewildered by what it was that Bielsa was asking them to do because... Nobody had ever spoken to them about things like that before. They'd never really seen teams play in the way that he was trying to to get them to play. And I know Argentina did go through a bit of a kind of revolution, tactical revolution around the sort of late 70s, early 80s. There were people who started to bring in fresh ideas, but he's always had a, a pretty sort of European style, you know, what we think of as quite a continental style over here and it just I I may be wrong with this but it just seems to me that there's something inherent with him there's this kind of natural gift to understand the game and and to understand it at at a very early age because don't forget you know he was going into coaching in his mid to late 20s because he'd he'd retired it wasn't as if he'd been around the game for for 10, 20, 30 years and had been able to build up the, um, the experience and I think when people laugh at or kind of mock the suggestion that he is this genius or he is quite special. I think if you properly take the time to follow his track record and to look at what he's done and, and how he does it, he's deserving of those those kind of titles. Right. Final question on this one, Phil, and then we'll move on. And it's a bit of a mean question because I've not teed you up for this in advance. But here you go. What's this book in amongst all the millions of books in the world? What is it going to add to the pile? I think it's going to add depth and detail on what has gone on specifically um, in this period at Leeds. And, and don't get me wrong, it, it will bringing aspects of what's gone on in, in the past with him and everything else. But I think it's still to be properly chronicled. Obviously, we have all written about him for, for the past two, two and a half years. Um, but in, in one place, still to be chronicled, the, the precise job that he's done, how it's worked, um, all the, the different strands to it. Um, and hopefully, hopefully people will enjoy it. You're a filthy glory hunter, Phil. Where's the, where's the, uh, the Hockaday book? Oh, that's next. Don't worry. <laughs> There are only six words I want to hear come out of your filthy mouth now, Phil Hay, please. And they are, Calvin Phillips is fit for Sunday. 
We will speak to Bielsa Friday lunchtime. Um, so later today, if you're listening on Friday morning, I would be surprised, to be honest. I think I don't think it's serious. I don't think um, it's a, a massive issue, but it sounds like he was likely to be doubtful for this weekend, which is obviously not ideal at all. They, they are, without question, a better team leads with Phillips in that um, defensive midfield role. Uh, but Bielsa will, will tell us for sure, for sure. But if he is missing, I, I won't be shocked. Tierney and um, Party are both out. They're confirmed as being out for Arsenal. So it's a big chance, this one, for Leeds. And they're, I don't know what Arsenal are. I mean, it goes back to the uh, the podcast you did with Amy Lawrence on earlier in the season for the home fixture. I still don't quite understand what Arsenal do or what they are. Tell us about Arsenal. Uh, well, that great question you asked, are, are they any good? And I still don't think anybody can say that, yes, they are. They are suffering from injuries and a, a bit of disruption. But I think fundamentally... Arteta doesn't seem to be getting them right as a unit. They've got a decent defensive record, very decent defensive record. They're light going forward and they're not light in the sense that they don't have decent players going forward. They just don't create... I was going through um, Opta's stats and, and looking you know, at the, the big chances, which Opta kind of classes, the, the chances you, you ought to take or are, are really the, the better ones that, that you produce. And they're very much mid-table with that. You know, they're, they're not... They're not anywhere near out in front. They're not looking particularly dangerous. And I think the league position they're in is about right at the moment. Um, position one place below Leeds. And, I mean, the, a party missing for them is going to be a problem because Arteta is going to have to decide what to do in the centre of, of midfield. Does he go? He, he tends to favour a 4-2-3-1. So is it going to be um, Xhaka and um, Caballos as the two? If it is, that's the same two that played at Ellen Road in November, where they've really struggled with Leeds' high press. They found it extremely difficult to play out and to get any time on the ball. And they, they almost found themselves playing as additional centre-backs. They were they were so deep. I know the people who cover Arsenal are, are suggesting that the way to go would be to throw um, Odegaard in there or, or Smith-Rowe, you know, to, to have a bit more pace and to, to mix it up slightly, give them more attacking threat but they they cannot play in the way that they did at Ellen Road because they offered nothing they 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 had that one chance in the second half that Melier saved but it was on the counter and it was all reliant on just breaking out and and a bit of pace down the left in terms of actually piecing together quality passage of play and and, and quality chances there was very very little so I'm I'm with you I, I think this is absolutely there to be won this weekend. I think it's a, a really, really big opportunity for Leeds. And I think the players will feel like that too. It does feel like a genuine opportunity. Uh, I, I described on the Square Ball podcast earlier in the week that Leeds are a team that you think are more than the sum of its parts, whereas Arsenal are the opposite. There's something a bit dysfunctional there. And if ever there's a, a time to t- you know, take advantage of the, the fact that more away teams are winning in the Premier League because the grounds are empty or whatever it might be, this feels like it. I just, I feel this is a good chance to to break the London hoodoo if you believe in that sort of thing. Yeah, which has been running for a long time now. I sort of don't believe in it, but it would be nice to see that that record end. There is no logic for why you can't win at QPR or Brentford or Fulham or wherever else. It's not as if you're struggling against exactly the same side over and over again. The problem for Arteta at the moment is he is struggling to prove that he's a, a you know a, a top-level coach. It's... It's all a bit flat and a bit bland. I think when Amy Lawrence was on with us before Christmas, she was saying that it, it's all a bit restrained, you know, and a bit too controlled as if everything's got to be programmed and, and everything, you know, there's nothing that's off the cuff or nothing that relies too much on flair. And, and you've got to have a mixture of both. You see it with 
City at the moment with Guardiola. They, they're so there's so such a plan there and such an obvious plan and you know, it's really well drilled and it's really well structured. But there's still that quality that shines through constantly. You know, people like Foden who, who's looking it's starting to look the absolute class that people have spoken about for ages is, is really coming through in him. Arteta has come as Guardiola's assistant, gone from City and gone to Arsenal. And I think it's found it difficult. You know, I, I don't think this is what he would have envisaged when he went there. I think he would have liked to have made a really big impact and a really quick impact. I'm sure he would have liked to have thought of himself as somebody who could have mixed it at a, a higher level in the division. I think the squad's a long way off and I think there are bigger issues at Arsenal that go above the, the dugout. But at the same time, they, they just have this way of from time to time picking up results but then straying back into territory where they, they look vulnerable again. And, and this doesn't feel like a bad time to be going there. In the lucky uh, blue and green kit probably, I imagine? I would guess so. I would think it will have to be, given that the maroon would clash and, and the white would clash as well. But you know me, I don't tend to do kits. You were wearing one actually for the athletic quiz, weren't you, a lead shirt? It was good to I see was, you on one. I was, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was hiding my belly because it doesn't fit too well. But the top half I can just about get away with. <laughs> Did you have to puff your belly out to fill it? Is that what you meant? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. How do you feel this one's going to go then? Because I'm optimistic going into this one. I feel like the pressure's mostly off and see no reason why we can't get a win. What about you? If Phillips is missing, then that makes a difference because that's probably going to involve Stroik moving into that area and then you, you're you potentially you're pulling Ailing across um, from right back and, and suddenly there's a lot of shifting about going on. It's not insurmountable and Ailing's had good games there before. Um, you do have the option of of dropping Cleek back into um, into holding holding midfield as well, uh, but Rodrigo won't be fit, so he's a, he's a bit light on numbers as Bielsa. There, there are a fair, fair few absentees, which isn't making it easy. But I, I think you saw Ellen Road the way that Leeds football contrasting with Arsenal's football put Arsenal under pressure constantly. The the pace of it and the speed of the movement, the kind of front foot attitude was in was a complete com, complete contrast really with, with what Arsenal were trying to do. And I think if Leeds go there and play like that, they'll get something out of the game. I do think I do think there's something to be had at the Emirates this weekend. Would you be happy with the draw, Michael? No, there's no point, is there? Might as well try and win. <laughs> uh, gloves are off now. I mean, you said on the podcast um, that we did a couple of days ago that you know, why not? Let's go win it. But a draw is fine, isn't it? I we mean, don't draw many games. The thing is, we don't ever try to draw a game, do we? Whereas like no. Palace the other night, they would have probably gone into that happy with a point. I don't get the feeling we ever really, even if maybe we would be happy with a point, I don't ever feel we go into a game with that in mind. It's try and win. And sometimes you win 5-0 and other times you get beaten 6-2. But the intention is always to go and win. So I think we can do that. And I think we can. I don't, think, I don't look at Arsenal's team and feel particular fear at any area of it. I think Saka's a good player. I think they've, people like Lacazette and Aubameyang, they have good players in the squad and Willian, but Arsenal fans seem to mainly hate them. So they can't be very good for them <laughs> at think, the moment. I think Arsenal fans hate everything. They, don't, they hate their own club, everything about it. I mean, we've been there as well, in yeah. fairness, where you, where you have that hateful feeling towards everyone. I mean, if you go back a few years, you'd have probably looked at the Arsenal team and the Leeds team and said, "Would you? Sw- how many players would you swap between them? And all we'd have, of them. And we'd have said all of them, whereas now I'm probably struggling to say name more than one or two that I'd prefer. So let's go and win. When, when I think of Arsenal and Leeds in the Premier League, I think back to those games where Henri used to turn up to Ellen Road and look like he was going to score about 15 times and, and it was all just a, a cakewalk. And it's con- completely different at Arsenal now. And you're right. I mean, Willian seems to have been a, a fairly dreadful signing. Um, they don't, they don't seem to be coming together or particularly 
improving or, or strengthening. They, they look every bit as limp as they were when, when Arteta first came in, give or take. It's interesting, somebody was asking me the other day whether or not I can remember a single game where Leeds played for a draw, were happy for a draw, tried to, to close out a draw under Bielsa. And I, I genuinely don't think I can. I can remember them clinging on for wins like Barnsley at home, for example, as they were heading for promotion last season. But I think this, again, his attitude that we'll always play to win, it's actually borne out in the games. And what is it at the moment? 10 wins, two draws, 10 defeats. You know, you, you get the sense that by the end of the season that it'll look pretty much identical and there'll be very, very little in between just a stack of wins and a, and a stack of losses. But it is entertaining and it and it is good. And I think it, it makes you realise that the, they will consistently go to places like Arsenal and have a crack. You're never going to get there and find leads in a low block, taking very few risks. And, I, and you know, I, I, I always do feel that the more risks they take, the more likely they are to win a game. I've still got Thierry Henry PTSD with you mentioning that. Yeah, he used to rip us a new one every single time, didn't he? And I just wish that we had quick players who could run at us and uh, run at the opposition, sorry, and, and do the same sort of thing for us as they were doing for the uh, for the opposition teams. Just thinking about this game on Sunday, is this probably the first time with the exception of, let's say, the Derby and Charlton games at the end of last season where Leeds can play with a certain degree of freedom. Now the pressure is largely off. Would you agree? And I mean, look what we did in those two games when there's no pressure. I thought there was a fair amount of freedom against Palace on Monday. I'm not saying that the players are, are in any way switching off, and I don't think they would sit and say to themselves, "Ah, we're, we're fine here." But I think the I think result after result is is just breeding bundles of of confidence, and the tension that you see in in other games and in other teams who are a little bit further down the league and, and are kind of feeling the the potential creep of of clubs behind them. It just isn't there at Leeds, and and yeah, absolutely, they, uh, there's nothing. There's nothing on this really, um, but it. But at the same time, it, it is there to to be won, and it, it strikes me that Leeds are only going to be more dangerous when they're, they're pretty much when they feel free to play as they as they want to play. But you know as well as I do that it would make no difference if they were twentieth in the table. They would play the same way Sunday as they will do being tenth, and it's always been that way from the start, and it'll be the way of things until Bielsa leaves. Funny, isn't it, that you'd think if someone told you going into this game, let's say last summer you said, right, we're going to spend £100 million in the summer and then three of the players that you buy for that £100 million quid will be out, as will Calvin Phillips. You'd be absolutely terrified going to Arsenal, wouldn't you? But it's funny how it's just not worked out like that. And that's perhaps what I'm sort of angling towards with how things have shifted. The power has shifted between the two clubs and the state of mind of the two of them. Yeah, give us a one to watch, Phil. Well, let's make it the London hoodoo. Is it going to end this weekend? It seems to me that it's about the best opportunity there's been since coming up. Leeds haven't been to, to Fulham yet. Um, Spurs away was always going to be hard. Um, Chelsea away is probably the, the most difficult game Leeds have been up against. But Arsenal, they just seem a little bit vulnerable to me. Um, obviously, there was Palace in the thick of that as well, which which went badly wrong. But it, I don't know, against a side which doesn't seem to have much in the way of flair or, or ambition about it, this has got to be an opportunity, no? Game moved to a neutral venue. <laughs> That's the news still That's to come. Be it, isn't it? They're going to they're end up playing in Nottingham or something like that due to the rain. <laughs> and finally then, give us a prediction for it because Michael went wild on the Square Ball podcast, said 3-0 to Leeds. Uh, I don't know if you've been drinking that particular morning. Um, I think Hart says win, Head says draw. What do you reckon? Hart says win. I think Head says win as well. I want to say 2-1 because I can't believe that Leeds will go there and, and win at a canter. But do you know what? I quite like the 3-0 suggestion. Kind of feeling that 
tends to know his stuff, does Michael, as well. Really? It's the first time anyone's ever said that. But I don't know. I feel like if we get an early goal, they could all start fighting amongst themselves and Matthias Click can get drunk and break down on the pitch at the end. <laughs> <laughs> you're only saying that nice thing about Michael because you're a morning drinker as well, Phil. That's true. That wraps it up for this week. We'll find out whether your one to watch was correct next week when we get back together and talk about the Arsenal game. Uh, you can catch up with The Athletic for a special price in 2021. The full Phil Hay experience and ad-free versions of all our podcasts for less than a quid a week. Go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to check that out. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Bye bye. The Phil Hay Show.